Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. My name is Judd Littleton, and I'm a partner in the litigation group and co head of the firm's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. I'm here again with Julia Malkina, who is a partner in our litigation group and co head of our securities litigation practice, as well as Morgan Ratner, who also helps head up our Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. Today, we're continuing our series of podcast supplements to SNC's Supreme Court Business Review which is our summary of the decisions from the past term that are most relevant to businesses. Once again, you can find the Supreme Court Business Review as well as all of our podcast episodes once they're released on SNC's website at www.sulcrom.com. In this episode, we're delighted to be joined once again by Sharon Cohen-Levin, a partner in our litigation group and criminal defense and investigations group. Sharon's joining us to discuss the Supreme Court's recent decision in Cathareer versus Sizen Bornemisa. The decision addresses the correct choice of law rule in a dispute between a family that surrendered a painting to the Nazi regime in the 1930s and the Spanish Museum that currently displays it. Sharon brings unique insight to this area of the law. For two decades, she led the Money Laundering and Asset Forfeiture Unit in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. Her discussion today builds on her previous Supreme Court Business Review podcast appearance, discussing Federal Republic of Germany versus Phillips, a Supreme Court case decided in February 2021 that also addressed Nazi-era looted art. Today, Sharon will continue to help us understand the legal landscape for heirs seeking restitution of property looted as part of severe violations of international law and the implication of the court's decision for the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act more generally. Thanks very much for joining us, Sharon. Would you tell us about the property at issue in this case? Certainly. Casserere revolves around an 1897 oil painting, Rue St. Honoré in the Afternoon, Effect of Rain. From the perspective of an elevated hotel window, Camille Pissarro depicted with short, light, and thick brushstrokes a broad Paris Avenue clustered with carriages and pedestrians, surrounded by shops with awnings intersecting a theater and a large fountain flanked by leafless trees, all subject to the rain of a winter afternoon. Paintings from the Impressionist movement are especially desirable to collectors, and Pissarro is recognized as one of the leading painters of the Impressionist movement. The specific Pissarro piece under consideration in this case is worth tens of millions of dollars. Thanks, Sharon. It really is a beautiful painting. And for any of our listeners who want to take a look, the Supreme Court actually included a photo of the painting of the trial exhibit in this case at the end of its decision. So Sharon, when did the painting make it into the hands of the Casarier family who are the plaintiffs in this litigation? Almost immediately. Pissarro's agent sold the painting to Paul Casarier in 1900. The Casariers were a prominent German Jewish family that owned an art gallery and a publishing house. Lily Casarier inherited Rue St. Honoré around 25 years later and she hung it in her home in Berlin. That's actually the second photo at the end of the Supreme Court's decision, a photo of the painting hanging in Lily's home. So tell us, Sharon, why did Lily part with the painting? She did not do so voluntarily. The Nazis, acting through a Munich art dealer named Jacob Schweidwimmer, extorted the painting from Lily in 1939 as a condition of her exit visa from Germany. 
the Nazis' persecution of Jews had intensified by 1939, and Lily sought to flee the country. She ended up in the United States with her grandson, Claude, but she did not forget Rue Saint-Honoré, and in 1950, she brought a court case in Germany to recover the painting. What happened in that first German case? Unfortunately, Lily did not know the painting's whereabouts. Although the German Federal Republic recognized her title in 1958 and awarded her 120,000 German marks, which was about $250,000, as compensation, it could not return the painting to her. I'm sure that was very disappointing for her, despite the money. So what happened to the Rue Saint-Honoré? Well, like Lily and her grandson, Claude, it ended up in the United States, at least initially. In 1951, it was acquired in Beverly Hills by an American art collector, Sidney Brody, who sold it a year later in New York to another American art collector, Sidney Schoenberg. Rue Saint-Honoré sat in Schoenberg's collection in St. Louis for almost 25 years. How did the painting make it back to Europe and into the foundation's collection? Baron Hans Heinrich Thyssen Bornemisa, a descendant of the founder of the German Steel Empire, he bought the painting and hung it in his home in Switzerland. He also loaned it to exhibitions across the world, including in Australia, Japan, Germany, France, and Spain. Then in 1993, Spain purchased much of the Baron's art collection for more than $300 million through an entity called the Thyssen Bornemisa Collection Foundation, which is a party to this particular case. Spain provided a palace in Madrid to display the Baron's collection, and that's where Rue Saint-Honoré sits today. That's quite the journey for Rue Saint-Honoré. So when did the Casarier family finally find out what had happened to the painting? Sadly, they found out after Lily passed away. A friend of Claude's, who was Lily's sole heir, saw the painting in a catalog of the Foundation Museum and informed Claude of the Rue Saint-Honoré's location in about 2000. Wow, so that was 60 years after Lily had surrendered the painting to the Nazis? Exactly. In 2001, Claude filed a petition with the Foundation and Spain presenting a claim to Rue Saint-Honoré, but his petition was denied. And what was the foundation's justification for denying that petition? The foundation argued that it conducted due diligence on the painting when it purchased it from the baron, that it found no evidence that the baron did not have a legitimate title, and that the baron's title had never been questioned over the years. Before we get into the legal analysis, Sheridan, your experience leading the Southern District of New York's money laundering and asset forfeiture unit. How typical is this background for a painting, which is the subject of a restitution case? Sadly, it is not uncommon. The coercive context of the initial sale is typical of what happened during the Nazi era. When I last spoke on this podcast, we discussed Federal Republic of Germany versus Philip. And in that case, the plaintiffs alleged that Hermann Goering, Hitler's deputy and the prime minister of Russia, used political persecution and physical threats to get a consortium of three art firms owned by Jewish residents of Frankfurt to sell the Guelph treasure, a collection of religious relics, for one-third of its value. The Nazis looted European art to a staggering extent. 
from 1933 to 1945, hundreds of thousands of pieces of art were worth billions of dollars were stolen by the Nazis through looting or forced sales. Allied forces at the end of World War II found plundered artwork in more than a thousand repositories across Germany and Austria. Some estimates state that the Nazis looted approximately 20% of Europe's art. The U.S. Armed Forces identified and directed the return of 700,000 pieces of art or works of art to foreign governments of the countries from which they were taken in the hopes that those governments could then identify and restore the art to their original owners. But more than 100,000 items have yet to be returned to their rightful owners. Thanks, Sharon, for that fascinating and troubling background. So back to Rue St. Honoré, Claude and the Foundation both explained it. How did the U.S. court system get involved? Well, in 2005, Claude sued the Foundation in federal court in the Central District of California. This initiated another long journey for Rue St. Honoré. Indeed, the Supreme Court's decision we're discussing here is still not the final word on the rightful owner of Rue St. Honoré. What legal issue did the Supreme Court consider in the 17th year of the legal journey of Ruth St. Honoré? Claude brought a suit against an instrumentality of a foreign sovereign, Spain. And so his suit involved the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, or FSIA. The court considered the appropriate choice of law rule when a foreign sovereign is not immune from suit under the FSIA. Thanks, Sharon. So I think some background on the FSIA would probably be helpful here. So Sharon, what do listeners need to know to understand this case? In 1976, Congress enacted the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act to codify the longstanding principle under U.S. common law and international law that a foreign government cannot be sued in courts of another country absent the foreign government's consent. Now, even though the FSIA provides a foreign state or instrumentality with a baseline presumption of immunity, it still permits claims to proceed in an American court in specified circumstances. These circumstances include where a foreign state is engaged in commercial activity in or affecting the United States, or where it has committed a tortious act in the United States. Significantly for the Casariers and others seeking restitution, the FSIA also provides for an exception for when a foreign state engaged in a taking of property in violation of international law. And I take it that last exception is how the Casariers suit has been able to proceed in the U.S. courts? Exactly. The last exception strips a foreign state of immunity for cases involving rights and property taken in violation of international law. The lower court's application of this exception wasn't an issue in the Supreme Court ruling, but it was an important step in getting there. The Casarier case cleared two crucial hurdles before making it to the Supreme Court. First, because the lower court found that Jacob Scheidwimmer, the Munich art dealer who demanded that Lily surrender Rue St. Honoré, act as an agent of the governing Nazi regime, it held that the Casarier case was proceeding against a foreign sovereign and therefore the FSIA was at issue. Second, Lily was found to be a foreign citizen and not a citizen of Germany, even though she was a German Jew, because the Third Reich did not recognize Jews as citizens. This allowed the Kasserier case to clear the hurdle that blocked the plaintiffs in Federal Republic of Germany versus Philip. In Philip, 
the Supreme Court held that under what is known as the domesticating rule, a state expropriation of property from its own nationals is not a violation of international law of expropriation. And therefore, it doesn't fall within the FSIA takings exception. After the Casarero suit cleared those hurdles, why did the Supreme Court get involved? The question before the Supreme Court was what choice of law rule and therefore what substantive property law would govern this dispute. The court held that an FSIA suit raising non-federal claims, which is the case here, should determine the substantive law by using the same choice of law rule that would be applicable if a suit were brought against a private party. That's the broad takeaway from this case for litigation against foreign sovereigns. Okay, so that holding is straightforward enough, but how does it apply here? Well, the Court of Appeals held that the choice of law rule should be based in the federal common law. Applying that choice of law rule, the Court of Appeals found that it had to apply Spain's property law. By contrast, the Supreme Court held that the correct choice of law rule should have been California's choice of law rule and not the federal common law choice of law rule. The court reasoned that the FSIA was never intended to affect the substantive law determining the liability of a foreign state or instrumentality. The court stated, and I quote, when a foreign state is not immune from suit, it is subject to the same rules of liability as a private party. If Claude had brought suit in California against just an ordinary private museum, instead of a museum that is an instrumentality of Spain, California's choice of law rule and not the federal common law rule would have determined what substantive law the court would apply. So that same result should occur here, even though it's a government museum. So the Supreme Court's decision was procedural, not substantive. Will the decision have a substantive effect on the determination of which party ultimately owns Rue Santanare? The Casarier plaintiffs, who no longer include Claude, who sadly passed away in 2010, but they do include his heirs, think it could have a significant impact. The owner of the painting under Spanish property law, at least as applied by the lower courts, depends upon whether at the time of the acquisition, the acquirer, here the foundation, knew that the painting was stolen. If the foundation did not know the painting was stolen at the time it acquired it, then it owned the painting by virtue of adverse possession. Because the lower courts found that the foundation did not know the painting was stolen at the time of acquisition, the lower courts held that the foundation had a legitimate claim to the painting. The Casarier heirs argue that under California property law, even a good faith purchaser of stolen property, such as the foundation here, cannot prevail against the rightful pre-theft owner. So whether Spanish substantive law or California substantive law applies could make a big difference. But here's the rub. Just because California choice of law rules apply under the Supreme Court's decision doesn't mean that California substantive property law will ultimately apply. In fact, the district court conducted analyses under both the California and Spanish choice of law rules in the alternative. And in, in its view, both choice of law rules directed it to Spanish property laws. Now, the parties are hotly contesting that choice of law analysis, but it's certainly possible that the parties could end up right back where they started before the Supreme Court's decision applying Spanish law. 
Wow, thanks, Sharon. So if I'm understanding all of this correctly, uh, the American courts still have not finally decided who owns the Rue Saint-Honoré, but both Lily and Claude have already passed away and won't get to see how that turns out. Yes, that is really an unfortunate aspect of these restitution claims. It is all too often the case that only the victim's heirs will benefit from any judicial remedy. In these kind of cases, litigation often fails to achieve an optimal outcome. It's notable here that the lower courts had encouraged the foundation to quote, pause, reflect, and consider whether it would be appropriate to work towards a mutually agreeable resolution of this action, unquote. And the lower courts had observed that Spain had accepted the Washington Conference principles. Now, what the courts are referring to here was a conference that the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum co-hosted in 1998 a conference on Holocaust-era assets. That conference achieved a degree of consensus on a set of principles for dealing with art looted by Nazis during the Holocaust. One of these Washington conference principles encouraged alternative dispute resolution strategies. The lower court had hoped that despite its own ruling, there might be a less litigious resolution to this dispute. But at this point, it looks like Rue St. Honoré's journey in the American court system is not yet over. Thank you for that, Sharon. And thank you very much again for joining us. This really was a fascinating episode. We'll all have to continue to follow Lou Santonare's journey. Thank you for listening to SNC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.socrom.com. Please also join Judd, Morgan, and me, as well as all of our guests, for upcoming episodes of our Supreme Court Business Review podcast series.